thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. 702. Lines are always open. It's 22 minutes to uh, 3 o'clock and this final half hour on a Monday is dedicated to your science-related questions with Dr. Chris Smith, the naked scientist, as he joins us for uh, this half hour. Chris, good afternoon. Good afternoon. A pleasure to have you with us today. Um, now, I'll share my question a little bit later. Let's prioritize the questions of the listeners. Um, so let's start with Rod in Ranfontein. Hello, Rod. Hi, good afternoon. Hello, Dr. Chris. Hi. Uh, my wife suffers from glaucoma. Now, the question is, aircraft pressurization, can this affect a glaucoma patient? Hello, Rod. Well, first of all, what's glaucoma? Well, glaucoma is an unfortunate condition in which the pressure inside the eye rises too high. And as the pressure rises, what it does is it bears down on the blood vessels at the back of the eye, which come in and flow across the back of the retina and nourish the retina. And at high intraocular pressures, this affects the ability of blood to flow correctly and therefore to nourish the photoreceptors. And as a result of this, you can develop a condition called optic atrophy if the glaucoma is not controlled. And it's this sustained prolonged pressure and problems with blood flow that then lead to the loss of the cells in the retina that both receive information coming from the outside world but then also transmit that information off to the brain. And once those cells have died, you can't put them back, which is why it's very important if you have a family history of glaucoma to have the pressure in the eye measured regularly to make sure it hasn't climbed, or if this is detected, then you should be treated. And actually, it's very easy to treat glaucoma. You can give simple eye drops that control how uh, the pressure uh, sits in the eye. And as a result, if you normalise the pressure, the risk of having a problem is grossly minimised. Now, in terms of what happens if you are in different environments, well, it's the, the pressure in the eye itself that's the problem. It's the intraocular pressure, which is in the anterior chamber, the front part of the eye. And uh, there are various reasons why you can get glaucoma, but it shouldn't be affected by the pressure outside very much because that's applied to your whole body. And therefore, that's not going to affect anything. It's actually the pressure specifically the eye is exerting on itself from within. So flying should not be a major risk, I wouldn't have thought. But if there are any ophthalmic surgeons listening who would like to put me right, then do please let me know. But as far as I can tell, I wouldn't have thought there'd be any problem at all with flying at the kinds of pressures that one experiences inside a passenger aeroplane, for example, with a history of glaucoma. Anna in Brixton. Hello, Anna. Good afternoon, Zonia and Chris. Okay, I have a very strange question. Mm-hmm. Why do domestic cats have slit pupils like goats um, as opposed to the big cats like lion, cheetah, etc., mm-hmm. have round pupils like we do? Right. Okay. Chris? Yeah, th- this is a controversial one. One theory about why things like your, your household cat has a vertical pupil is uh, compared with, say, a rabbit or something or a goat which has a horizontal pupil is if you think about it, 
what do goats worry about? Well, things like goats are worried about things like lions coming along and eating them. So they need to be watching all the time what's going on. When they put their head down to eat, they actually rotate their eyeball a bit, but their pupil stays horizontal. And a slit pupil means that they actually have the ability to collect light from a broader sweep of space compared to just up and down. And that means they can watch a broader area with their pupil that way compared to, say, if they had a vertical pupil. So they can detect danger coming in from the side over a big area. Now, a a stalking predator like a cat, on the other hand, will creep up on its prey and it tends to want to hunt. It doesn't get hunted so much. It wants to hunt and it wants to hunt what's directly in front of it. So it makes sense for the cat to condense its pupil down to minimise the amount of light coming in to make a slit because that way whatever's directly in front of it is still going to stay completely in focus and within its field of view. That's the the prevailing theory about why cats and and other predators have these vertical pupils and things like herbivores have horizontal pupils. One's worried about what's coming at them from the side, one's worried about what's dead in front of them that they're trying to catch. But what about the lions then? Because they're also predators, but theirs don't uh, end up in a vertical slit. Yeah, I mean, the other thing to consider is the actual size of the eyeball itself. And the fact is that our eyes Uh, don't do this. We actually have round pupils and round eyes. This is mm. judged to be a good compromise for us because it enables us to um, have a big pupil variation in size over a range of different light conditions. We're mainly day-active animals. We're we're comfortable that we can get our pupils small enough. Lions, yes, they they are predators, but they don't tend to stalk up on things the same way that your your local little feline-friendly lap cat does. So that might be the reason why the smaller cats, which creep up on things uh, and jump on them, are probably equipped with that vertical pupil, whereas a lion, which is probably going to run something down, um, give itself away well before it's going to creep up on something and then run after it. That's probably why they're different. Yeah, so just hearing your description, the, the friendly cat doing the stalking. I don't know about the <laughs> friendly anymore, but uh, lovely contrast there, Chris. Anna, are you happy with I'm happy and I just wish my cat wasn't such a good predator because she constantly catches birds and lizards. <laughs> but then she's brilliant. doing what Thank cats do. Much. Brilliant cat doing what cats do. That's Anna in Brixton. Next we have Joseph in the CBD. Hi, Joseph. Oh, Bernie, how are you? Good, and how are you? I'm all right, man. You know, my question is diet related. Uh-huh. Yeah. Look, uh, I just wanted to share with the naked scientists there mm-hmm. that, you know, the relationship between the blood group and the food that we eat, because like myself, I thought that, you know, I'm deep positive and I'm not supposed to eat peanuts. I'm not supposed to eat chicken. And yeah. these are things that I like to eat. So I just wanted to verify from him, you know, how true is this thing that, you know, if you are... Um, blood types, mm. like, you know, it's be positive, you're not supposed to eat a certain type of food. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, yeah, very interesting question. And it's quite popular, Chris, right now, mm. you know, people check or eat according to their blood types. And they have these lists that say if you're mm. an A, you can't have red meat, and you should be more vegetarian, you know, if you're O, then you can have all the red meat that you want, and so on. Is there any truth to that, Chris? The only real truth here is that the best diet is a healthy, balanced diet that doesn't have an excess of any one particular food group for any person who is healthy. There's not really any good evidence to support any of this dietary rubbish. Most of these diets, the only the only thing that loses weight is your wallet. When you pay someone to subscribe to their diet plan or buy their very expensive supplements, it's all a load of rubbish. The best thing to do is to ask yourself, right, am I getting all the major food groups represented? Am I doing this in a healthy way? You can easily get off the internet some decent, good quality dietary advice from a peer-reviewed site which is actually clinically relevant. None of these celebrity diets, which are just faddy, 
actually work in the long term. The reason they might work a bit in the short term is probably for one simple reason, that if they make you focus on what you're eating and how much of it you're eating, you actually realise how much you're overeating and therefore you compensate by eating a bit less. And so I can't emphasise enough the importance of healthy food because the reason people live as long as they do in the modern era is because we are being much better nourished than we historically were. The sad irony, though, is that there are still millions of people around the world who are malnourished, but they are obese. They're, They're eating plenty of calories but they're eating all the wrong things so actually what we put into our mouths in what sorts of ratios is very very important if you think back to our historical origins cave people would not have known what blood group they were they would have just eaten what they fancied and they would have eaten what grew locally they would have eaten what was available at the time humans have evolved to actually be omnivorous and to be able to cope with a very broad dietary repertoire and to make hay when the sun shines both physically and metaphorically. So what you have to do is to just bear in mind you you do you do carry this genetic legacy of our of our origins. So we are predisposed to gain weight because we love storing calories whenever we get the opportunity. So therefore don't overeat but do try to eat a good combination of all the right things make sure you get your five portions of fruit and vegetables a day that's really important and by the way drinking a glass of white wine does not class as one of your five a day just because it's from fruit okay that's a bonus (laughs) if you've done all the other things in a a virtuous way yes joseph there you have it but i've also been in these debates and yes exactly no i've been in these debates as well i know (laughs) your frustration that's joseph in uh, Pretoria. Thank you. A pleasure out in the CBD. Uh, Tasneem in Mayfair. Hi, Tasneem. Hi, Zania. Excellent show. Um, I wanted to know about candida, and I believe it, it's fairly common, but there's different types of candida. And I think one is what, it's called garata or something. Apologies, I can't remember the name. Can, uh, can you please tell me more about it, and is there actually any cure? I believe it thrives in sugary environments in our body or yeast or whatever it is, but I'd like to more, know more about it. Okay. Thank you, Tasneem. Um, thank so, you. Thank you. So, Chris, just a quick uh, lecture, a brief lecture <laughs> about candida. Okay, well, candida is a yeast. This is a kind of fungus. And when you look at this down a microscope, they look like little balls. And the most common type that we encounter medically is Candida albicans. They're these white little balls. But there are other types, as was alluded to, of Candida, including Candida glabrata. That's another one. And really experienced microbiologists can look down a microscope and they can look at how these things behave and they can tell which ones they're dealing with. They're all capable of causing disease, but they're not normally aggressive pathogens. They normally live on the outside of the body and our own microbes that live naturally on our body tend to keep their numbers in check and also your immune system keeps them in check. If you have a problem with your immune system, then these yeasts can get in where they shouldn't be and then they can begin to cause very serious diseases in various organs, including your kidneys, lungs and so on. How do we treat them? Mm. Well, there are a number of ways to to manage candida infections. There are some really good drugs that are really simple. Caniston cream has got clotrimazole in it. This is a, a chemical that just totally inhibits and blocks the growth of these things, kills them off. And usually, often people will say they get candida as a, as a, a phenomenon of overgrowth. If you take antibiotics, for example, if you have an antibiotic infe- if you have a, a, a um, bacterial infection, and you take antibiotics. For a little while, these upset your microbial apple cart because many of these antibiotics knock out many of the good bacteria that we need to live in our body. And when those levels change, those good bacteria 
are doing a job for you of suppressing the growth of the candida or keeping it at bay. If you kill off those microbes, then you temporarily can get an overgrowth of the bad guys. These uh, yeasts can overgrow for a while and then you get say mucosal candida and this can happen in the genitals it can happen in your mouth and throat people who take asthma inhalers for example must wash their mouth out from steroids for example because otherwise they can get local sore mouth caused by candida so the best way to treat them if you need to you may need to take an antifungal drug or a cream applied to the area um, you can minimize the risk of it coming back again by minimizing your exposure to antibiotics that kill off the good bacteria and if, if you do find yourself highly susceptible to this keeping on coming back, do go and get checked out medically because other things can encourage the growth of candida, including, for instance, if you have too much sugar in your urine, if you're diabetic, this can encourage you to get genital infections with candida because the yeast thrives mm-hmm. on the sugar. So if this keeps happening to you, there might be an underlying reason with your uh, f- something's wrong with your health or your immune system, and you should go and get that checked out. Right. Uh, thank you so much, Tisneem. I wanted to ask this question because I came across this interesting piece, um, a study of 17 languages, um, including languages like Vietnamese, Italian, German. But they suggest that as human beings, we have a rate, a set rate of information transfer in our speech. And they say that it comes in at about twice the speed of Morse code, so at 39 bits per second. Um, So in essence, I think they they give details about how they conducted this whole study, but that no matter how quickly you speak, you still share the same amount of information. So, which surprised me, because I thought that if you get your words out as speedily as possible, that that would be sharing more information. Yeah, that was the theory, that uh, people who talk really fast are transferring a lot more information than people who talk really slowly in different languages. Obviously, there are going to be faster and slower speakers in an individual language, but between languages... You know, there are these there are these languages that rattle away really, really fast. And anyone who's trying to, say, understand them as a second language knows exactly what I'm talking about. When I go and listen to a Spanish person speaking Spanish, I struggle to keep up. I listen to my brother-in-law, who's English, speaking Spanish. He speaks more slowly. He speaks more clearly without an accent. I can understand that much more easily. But there is this idea that certain languages really fast spoken. Therefore, the rate of information conveyed must be really high so is that a really efficient culture with that language or you know conversely someone who's got a language that takes a million words to say anything and they speak really slowly really boring is that a really really inefficient language so what this group have done is paper published in science advances last week francois pellegrino's group did this they did exactly as you said recorded people speaking they recorded lots of different languages and they looked at people speaking exactly the same piece of language. So they they knew exactly how many bits of information were going to be conveyed when people spoke. And they Mm. decoded all these recordings and looked at how fast people actually got through the language, but how many words it took to actually convey the information they needed to convey. And when you do those calculations, you find that some languages, yes, they're delivered incredibly quickly, but actually the amount of information being conveyed isn't any faster. And as you say, about twice the speed of, of Morse code, about 39 bit per second is, is what's going across. And, and um, whilst that fills in an interesting linguistic gap in our knowledge, it also probably mm-hmm. points to the fact that 
How do we understand language? Well, our brains are decoding language. They're listening to the sounds coming in. It's being fed to the language centre, the receptive speech area of the brain, which is, which is actually Wernicke's area in your brain. And there, there is an enormous lexicon of words, which, when you've decoded the sounds, are presented to this part of the brain, and the correct word that that sound corresponds to is assembled into a sentence in your consciousness so you can understand spoken language. And it would suggest that we have this fundamental rate at which that bit of the brain works best. And therefore, regardless of how fast the language is spoken, the actual decoding of information can only go as fast as your brain is optimally capable of processing it. And given we all have a common origin, we're all human, it's not actually that surprising when you think about it. We therefore convey information at roughly the same rate, regardless of creed, culture or age. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. We've got Priscilla calling us from Q. Hi, Priscilla. Hi, how are you? Good, and how are you? I'm well, thank you. Um, I want to ask a scientist. I have a addiction where I'm eating to red pepper. So I want to know what the reason is for that and also how can I um, cure it or get rid of it. When did you start eating toilet paper? Um, a few years ago. Okay. From childhood, actually. Oh, I see. And you, you swallow as in you consume it? Yes, I do. Okay, all right. I've got so many questions, Priscilla, but I don't want to put you on the spot. Um, Chris, any thoughts? Because Priscilla says she wants to stop this. She's addicted to eating toilet paper. Well, it sounds like uh, we describe funny eating fads as PICA, P-I-C-A. That's the medical term for this. It's not that uncommon, Priscilla, except that not many people would actually be brave like you and admit to it. Um, lots of people do have funny cravings and even people who've been pregnant. You know, lots of people listening to this will have had children. And they'll say, wow, you know, when I was pregnant, all my taste changed and I started wanting to eat the bizarrest of things. And when you're pregnant, one theory as to why we do this is that it's the body's way of making you want to go and seek out foodstuffs that contain whatever it is that you're lacking in or you need more of to support the pregnancy at that time in terms of micronutrients and so on. Um, in terms of abnormal eating behaviour though, there's a range of reasons why this could be happening and this is quite a complex situation and if I were you, I would go and talk to somebody who's an addiction specialist because A, it could be bad for you if you keep doing this in the long term and B, actually the help that you're going to need to sort this out is going to hinge on why you're doing it in the first place and so to unpick why you're doing it, that will take a specialist to ask you the right sorts of questions and to work out what tends to trigger it, why you tend to do it, why you're compelled to do this and what relief you get when you've actually gone through the ritual of eating the toilet paper. Why do you enjoy doing that? And they can then help with a strategy as to how to break that cycle and then you won't have to do that anymore. Amazing. Um, do we have time for those voice notes? Let's quickly play this voice note, Chris, uh, and then we'll be signing out. Good afternoon, Chris. Um, I would just like to ask with regards to science and that, we had a talk earlier on uh, 702, um, the Technobyte, I think it was, um, they were talking about 5G. What uh, are, do we have any evidence of uh, the health health deficits there of um, how could 5G impact the health with regards to microwaves and what have you, or is that just um, sensationalism or fallacies? All right. So the impact of all these networks, particularly 5G. The difference between 5G and the things that have come before, 4G, 3G and so on, is that they're using a higher frequency 
for the data. And if you have a higher frequency, you're packing more waves into any given distance and therefore you can pack more information in. That's why actually 5G will enable you to download a whole movie in a matter of seconds, for example, because the amount of data transmission is much higher. The problem is, as you up the frequency in this way, the range over which the waves can be used reduces. So this means we need a lot more base stations and we need to shrink the sizes of the cells that we set up in order to send and receive 5G messages. And so people have begun to express concern or at least asked for reassurance that when you increase the amount of power of the output, which is what we're going to have to do, and you put more of these cells all over the country, does this mean that there may be health consequences? At the moment, there is no evidence to support an association between exposure to these sorts of frequencies and there being any kind of health outcome that's adverse. The experiment that's being done effectively is on the scale of the whole world because people have been using these sorts of devices, mobile phones, microwave ovens that that do spit out a bit of this stuff, Wi-Fi, for example, that spits out uh, microwave radiation. We've been exposed to this in increasing amounts, over increasing amounts of time across the world. And With any kind of cause and effect relationship, if something causes something to happen, you have to see what's called a dose-dependent relationship. In other words, the higher the dose going into people, the more of a particular outcome you should be seeing. At the moment, we're not seeing any kind of relationship between how people are using and being exposed to these sorts of radiations and, and adverse health outcomes. But that doesn't mean that people have stopped looking. There's an ongoing trial to concern, consider health outcomes and exposure to these things. At the moment, we're comfortable that there are no health consequences, but at the same time, we're still looking. Fantastic. Thank you for that clarification, Chris. And thank you for all your questions. Uh, Chris will be with us again next week, Monday. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.